it's the force of reasoning and the cultivation of reasoning that is, in my judgment, ultimate hope of humanity. Coming up on In Contrast, economist and philosopher Amartya Sen. I'm Ilan Stavans, and In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Amartya Sen is a noted economist and philosopher. He's a teacher at Harvard University and Trinity College in Cambridge, England. Sen is the author of many books and articles, including Development as Freedom and the Idea of Justice. In 1998, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for his work in welfare economics. Amartya Sen, thank you for coming to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I want to start by asking you if you believe that in the current climate where populists are popping up in different parts of Europe, the United States, the Middle East, Latin America, if the perception that we have of globalism, the one that we've been working on for 30 years, is about to go a drastic, irrevocable change? Or do you think that this is just a temporary interruption and that we will go back to the globalist vision that defined the end of the 20th century, the beginning of the 21st? That's a very complicated question. <laughs> you know, we have had localism and regional conflict all the time. The First World War, where Britain, Germany, France tore each other up with a huge human toll of people being killed. It was only the beginning of the 20th century. And it's difficult to think that the, the French and the Germans and the Brits may think of themselves to be so hostile to each other they couldn't stand each other's company. It wasn't religion, they were all Christian. It wasn't culture, they were all European in some broad sense. And they were neighbors. So I don't know that one could be tempted to think that we live in a world where we are tolerant of each other and somehow we have fallen from it. I think there is constant danger of falling from it. The First World War could have been prevented and the present turmoil is also completely unnecessary. But it is not unusual in the sense that the world has seen things like it again and again. And we have to find means and the determination and the will to stop it. Do you think that the perception of living in a world where borders matter less, the global world, where there is a movement of capital and of labor, that is the vision of, at least in some form, globalism, is not being undermined in a way that we will actually regress? It's a question of deciding what we can do about it, and there are a great many things we can do about it. And one has to bear in mind that there will be forces on the other side. Many of the things that is being said right now in the context of the politics of the United States, bringing in issues about racism, I would have thought, had been long conquered or anti-Semitism, which I would have thought would have disappeared by now. 
after having had such a strong force in the 1930s, but they're there, and they're advocates of it. So no victory of humanity is without an opposition, and this is unfortunate, because one would like to live in a world where that is not the case. But there is opposition, but it's an opposition that we can conquer. So what we have to think about is what are the ways and means of not allowing the unfortunate situation that you were describing, not allowing that to actually develop or win on the basis of the support they have, because compared with any support they have, the forces of reason, forces of understanding, forces of appreciation of each other can be strong and indeed stronger. So I think there's no reason to lose hope, but there's no reason to sit contented either. That gets you nowhere. You are known and have written very eloquently about the concept that freedom, rather than being understood as simply the choice between A or B or C, needs to be seen in the larger context of certain conditions. In your book, Development as Freedom, advocates for the idea that where there is deprivation, there is poverty, there is a lack of freedom that needs to be taken into account, that the true free individual is one where the basic conditions, education and healthcare and access to information and so on, are all at least met or come to a level of satisfaction. I would like to start by asking you, how do you define the word freedom? Freedom is best defined in terms of examples. Now, freedom is a very complicated notion, and I think more easily defined in terms of its presence or absence. When people are able to speak their mind, when they're not stopped by others, not sought by others for no reason, or reasons that are not worthy of being human life in danger. When we deal with situations where people are not dying of hunger or dying of medical absence of medicine when medicine can be produced relatively cheaply, when people are prevented from studying and making themselves educated. I mean, these are absence of unfreedom of various kinds. So in some ways, I'm saying two things here, that freedom is sometimes more easily defined by denial of unfreedom. What would it be like if you didn't have freedom? Not that. That's what I'm saying. The second point I'm making is that freedom is often defined in terms of examples rather than that condition of mind where you, etc., etc., could be very complicated. But to say this and say that, and you know, what do we worry about in politics? We worry about racism, we worry about what happened in Nazi Germany, what happened in fascist Italy, what happened in colonial empires, where the subjects were often crushed by the imperial powers. We talk about where women don't have the ability to lead the kind of life they have reason to value. These are all examples of unfreedom, and you could say not that. So I think we have to think about freedom as something where some terrible violation of what we would like of a particular kind in dealing with 
what we are able to do, actually able to do, rather than in principle able to do. So if you're thinking of that, we are discussing absence of unfreedom, and therefore I would tend to think freedom in that sense. I think to say a particular condition of human existence and then define it and describing it is not the best way or not the direct way of understanding. We are upset about freedom in wanting to preserve freedom because we don't like unfreedom. We don't like being bossed around. We don't like being maltreated and subjugated. And it's the lack of subjugation that's what we want. And when we talk about freedom, are we talking about a particularly human concept? Are other beings free? We're talking about examples. The desire of a dog or of an elephant to bring food to itself or to its family, the capacity to move without restriction. When we talk about humans' freedom, are we talking about something different than that limitless capacity to move of the animal kingdom? I think we are talking about something different. This is not because in principle they are different. They may or may not be. And I don't think I want to even address the issue because there is an issue in hand that is so important that I don't want it to be diluted by consideration of how would it apply to elephants, to dogs, to cats, and then going down to ants and rabbits and so on. I don't really know. I think human and human mind is very central here. The human mind have a capacity to reason, and the capacity to reason that being able to decide oneself is important, being able to get what would one would decide, like food, like education, like health care, is important. These are all products of reasoning. You were mentioning that we have, as humans, the desire not to be controlled, the desire to be educated, the desire to have our needs satisfied. This is an aspect of our reason. Do we learn to be free, or is this something intrinsic to us? Someone without education has an equal desire to be free than somebody with a full education. I won't make such a strong generalization, because I don't know what a full education would be like, but reasoning is very central to it, and we apply it not mechanically. When I'm riding a bicycle, I don't like someone saying, don't go to the right, go to the left, and so on. On the other hand, when I'm in an airplane, I don't want to decide whether I should go to the left and right. I would rather that the pilot did something like that. That's not a lack of freedom, a lack of control. And I certainly don't want the control of the airplane when I'm flying. On the other hand, do want control of the bike when I'm biking. So I think we apply our reasoning. And that's why I think it is really a hopeless and ultimately a counterproductive task to try to define it in terms of characteristics of our life as opposed to reasoning about the characteristics of our life. Reason is quite central to the idea of freedom. I want to ask you about something you said at the beginning of our conversation, and that is that though there were always going to be opposing forces, we have to fight for what is reasonable. 
we were talking about the rise of populism, the spread of a sentiment that brings back racism and antisemitism and all these emotions. Can one imagine, or is it only utopian, that those unreasonable aspects can be defeated? Or is it the eternal yin and yang that somebody is always going to try to limit somebody else's freedom? And someone is also always going to try to keep somebody else under control. That the freedom of individuals and families and communities and nations ultimately needs to recognize that some will try to get ahead of others and control them. Yeah, you know, I think we have to distinguish between defeating certain forces of oppression that we would like to defeat. We have to distinguish between that and the eradication of the idea that anyone would want to oppress us. I think if we take the latter view, that we can eradicate that, I think we would be leading a life of imagination, because there could easily be forces that arise that do try to oppress. So it's not a kind of grim view of the world, saying there are oppressors hanging there all, coming out of the woodwork, they're all waiting. But the belief that we could somehow, once for all, eradicate the oppressors and lead a oppression-free life is a mistake. I think we have to think about what we will do if we face oppression. And humanity has always experienced that and often dealt with it. That doesn't mean that there are not forces in the opposite direction. Help comes from all kinds of ways that you can't overpower some terrible thing happening to you and other people help you in that. And I think a lot of our lives depend on cooperation with each other and with expecting that. So just as we expect cooperation, we might expect at least the potential for oppression also. What I'm arguing against is to think of a world in which we have overcome oppression in such a way that it will never arise. And unfortunately, we are going through one of those problems in the United States where many of us thought that problem has disappeared. Similarly, in my country of origin, India, we thought that we had conquered the communal virus which put Hindus against Muslims, against Sikhs, and so on. And there were terrible riots in the 1940s, but we overcame them when there were decades when none of that happened. But then again came a group which seemed to think that its political future and fortune lies in exciting those differences and those hostilities. If that happens, you have to take them up and fight them and defeat them. How do you do that? I think you might think that I'm a kind of reason goofy, which in a sense I am, by reason. That is, if some people are being racist, we have to ask the question, what makes their skin color or this, that, that important? If somebody, say in the Indian context, wants to excite feeling of Hindus against, say, Muslims by pointing to their different culture, different food habits, and so on, you could say, well, what's wrong with that? And why can't you eat what you want and they eat what they want? And I think there's reasoning in each of these cases. This is not only a modern thought. 
reasoning has been very central to our dealing with problems. Since I was talking about Hindus and Muslims, let's take a Christian problem. Think about Luke and the story of the Good Samaritan. And now here Jesus is arguing with a local lawyer. And the local lawyer says, our only duty is to our neighbors. And to which Jesus says, but who is our neighbor? And then he gives an example of the wounded man whom the locals don't help, but the faraway guy, the Samaritan, actually helps. And what the end of it, Jesus asks a question, which is not even an ethical question, an epistemic question, saying, okay, so when the wounded man is back to his senses and thinking about it, who would he think was his neighbor? So the lawyer has to concede that he would think the faraway guy, the Samaritan, to be his neighbor, not the people who live next door. That's reasoning. Now, I think the way we deal with problems that arise in our life is to unleash our reason. And that's why so many of the things that are being central to debates today, like education, like freedom of expression, like not drowning facts by talking about fake facts and so on, not allowing the media to flourish, media with different points of view, why they are important. Because ultimately, it's reasoning that allows us to detect problems, that allows us to fight problems, Nothing may eradicate them, but we can make them hell of a lot less likely. And so it's the force of reasoning and the cultivation of reasoning that is, in my judgment, ultimate hope of humanity. I couldn't celebrate it more. But as you were being self-critical on maybe portraying yourself as a reason groupie, I want to maybe run the risk of being a skeptic groupie or a skeptical groupie. But this bankruptcy that we are currently experiencing in the United States and in other parts of Europe that you were relating to, the fact that truth has been broken into factions in that each of these factions has its own truth. You were talking about fake news or alternative facts. How do you reason when the very concept of truth is questioned And when each faction builds on its own a vision of what is right and wrong. So the core concept of a shared morality is now broken into two or three or four. Can reason, which is a unifier, still engage in its strategies with its instruments in order to convince others when the very idea that you're trying to convince them is already undermining your position? Well, I think the way to do it is pursue it and give illustration. You know, I referred to earlier that in defining something is often done less by illustration. And the same is true of certain types of reasoning. Let me tell you an Italian story at the time when fascism was emerging, 1920s, early 20s. This is the story of a fascist recruiter who goes to a village and trying to recruit people to fascism. So he gets hold of this rural bloke who looks not that smart, and he tells the rural bloke, You know, fascism is doing such a lot of good in the country, you should join the fascist party. To which this chap, very silly as he is, says, I cannot join the fascist party because, you see, I'm a socialist. My father was a socialist. My grandfather was a socialist. How could I possibly join the fascist party? To which the fascist recruiter says, what kind of a silly argument is that? Suppose your father was a murderer and your grandfather was a murderer. 
and great-grandfather was a murderer, what would you have done then? To which this silly bloke says, well, then, of course, I would have joined the fascist party. So what is bringing out in that illustration is that there's something in our own mind, which in this case of the fascist recruiter, it also can be reached him. And even though this chap may look extremely silly, there is a reasoning that he can produce, which indicates that we are in a position to place ourselves in the way the other people's mind mm. work. I can give you hundreds of examples of that, where we carry on reasoning just of that kind, where we expose others to something which they are claiming to be fake news or fake fact, but in fact, when it comes to a proper application of that, they themselves see it as not being fake. That's the way humanity has argued. That's true of the clever religious argument of all religions. I personally have been very influenced by Buddhism. I'm just impressed by the fact how much Gautam Buddha uses that technology again and again about examples and how these examples bring out some fact. And I can think of similar things that applies to science and Galileo, Newton, who had to face difficulties, Copernicus, and so on. And so I think we live in a world where, through reason, we can communicate a lot, we can identify a lot, and we can actually fight and defeat a lot of the nasty forces that we have to face. I'm not saying that reason alone would do it. There may be circumstances, like in the case of the Second World War, where Nazi far had to be defeated. I'm not being a pacifist in that sense, even though pacifism does appeal to me greatly, and I wish it would be even more powerful than it already is. We often underestimate its power. We often underestimate the power of reason. That's not the same claim that reason alone can defeat every problem. I want to go back to the question of freedom and look here at the difference between a universal understanding of it, whatever we take of it, and you invoke the idea that the best way to define it is by example. This brings me to the question, is the understanding of freedom that one has the same in every culture? I'm thinking of, for a second, of transposing to another concept, the concept of love. Interestingly, when you open the word love in a variety of dictionaries, say a German dictionary, in a French dictionary, in a Spanish dictionary, in an Italian dictionary. Of course, every dictionary offers a different definition, but if there was an aspect that culturally this dictionaries harvest, there are cultural distinctions that the Germans will connect with Liebe that are different from the French connected with Amour or the Italians with Amore. Not to say that love is different, but love is understood differently. And I wonder if freedom is also culturally bound, not only class bound, but culturally bound. And so the understanding of freedom in the United States, in India, in Mexico, though based on a similar route, would be different or be interpreted differently. I think it's an interesting question, but it seems to me that we can distinguish two different ways in which freedom may understanding of freedom may differ. One may be the exact content of it. What we would like to be free about may differ, and differ partly because of our not necessarily immutable characteristics of our brain or some other phenomenon which cannot change, 
but because of the way we have brought about the stories we have read, the moral issues we have faced, the kind of religion to which we have been exposed and all that. So that's one kind of problem. And the other say to say that there is a fundamental difference between freedom in one society, meaning your ability to do what you have reason to do and what would serve ultimately the purposes that you want to promote. And they are not the same. And that particular idea of being free is not the same in different societies. I'll resist a second, because I think while we may differ in terms of the relative importance to be granted to one thing to another thing, it's not just between societies, it's between human beings, because we have been brought up differently. For example, I've been brought up in India. I can work while there's a lot of noise going on. I can work in trains. I can work while I'm in a queue and so on. And others find noise and this interruption tremendously disturbing. I respect that, but it's not because we want different idea of freedom. What I regard to be really nasty is not being allowed to, say, use my exercise book or computer if I'm prevented. That is intolerable. But while I'm doing it and there's a huge amount of noise going on, I recognize I'm lucky not to be so disturbed by it. My wife, for example, is much more disturbed by it. And it depends on how we have been brought up. So what we dislike, what we find intolerable could be different. But the idea that certain things that are intolerable and I must not be forced to have those things that I regard as intolerable that being freedom and that being important seems to me to be a commonality that is shared between different cultures. There is a section early on in your book of development as freedom that I would like to bring you back to. And I think you invoke it. It's a personal anecdote of yours of a famine when you were little and the choice that an individual had to make between two difficult challenging circumstances. And where I would love for you to bring it to the fore, this individual that came to your house being stabbed, to reflect on the question that seems to be resulting from what we've been talking about. And that is, is it possible to imagine circumstances where choosing non-freedom or the absence of freedom is better than choosing freedom? I find it difficult to construct an example of that kind at all. Now, the stabbing example that you gave, it was an example of one of the terrible things happening during the communal riots that happened for about 10 years in undivided India, just before independence. Shortly after independence, things moved away. This was happening in Dhaka, which is now the capital of Bangladesh. Now, at that time, Dhaka got very involved with Hindu-Muslim division, but only for a decade. Within three years of independence, East Pakistan and also West Bengal in India, they were discussing other things. In East Bengal, East Pakistan, it was language, the importance of Bengali language. It moved on. But that particular story, which is a very sad story for me, because I was a young boy of 10 or 11, I think, when I saw a Muslim day laborer who had come to our area, which was a predominantly Hindu area, being stabbed by some Hindu thugs. Now, just as similar things were happening in Muslim areas where the Muslim thugs 
But in this case, it was a Hindu thug which stabbed this guy. This guy came into the garden where I was playing, and he came in and he was terrible safe, wanted water, which I tried to get what shouted, and my father happily was there, came out and took him to the hospital where Lassie died. But among the things that I learned was the not only seeing death on my lap, as it were, where he was resting while we were waiting for the water to come, but also he was lamenting that his wife had told him not to go out. But he was very poor, and there was no food at his home, and he was offered a job in a Hindu area. So he thought he would take the risk to earn the income in order to be able to buy the food for his children. And on the other hand, he got killed, and he took the risk. His wife had told him not to go, not to take such a risk. But he had to take the risk because he had no choice since his children were starving. So this is a case where it's not a question of non-freedom being better, but freedom of different kinds are important, and freedom of different kinds being related. It's the lack of freedom from hunger that forced the name of this shepherd, Kadir to take a huge risk to try to earn a bit of income to keep his children alive, and then he lost his life. So the fact that unfreedom from hunger, economic poverty, can make you lose your freedom, even the freedom to live, was a huge understanding that overwhelmed me for some time in that incident. These are not examples where choosing unfreedom would be better. There may be some example. I'm thinking of one that I was hoping to mention to you. I occasionally teach in a jail, and in this jail, I have noticed that there are inmates who confessedly prefer to be inside the jail than outside. And when they get outside, because the system brings them out, they look for ways to return to the jail for the life that they live there is more secure. They come from parts of the country that are unstable, where there's violence on the streets. This predominantly young males. African-American, Latinos, but also whites. And seasonally, I have heard of two or three who tell me that if they get out, they look for ways to do a misdemeanor that will bring them back to the jail in winter and spring so that they can escape the inclement weather conditions. So maybe it's not the choice between freedom and unfreedom, but certainly is the choice of surrendering the capacity to move and do as you wish and to hope for your own job and for putting a roof on top of your head and education for the absence of freedom within the institution that will provide them the food and the education that they are not getting outside and the security. I see the point you're making, and it's an interesting point. And O. Henry, the lovely short story writer, in his book Four Million, had a story that's very like what you were describing. And there's a guy who is very poor, and in the, he often is arrested, and in the winter he likes being in the prison because there's heat, there's food, and so on. And it's a sad story. He tries to get arrested again and again, and the police won't arrest him. Ultimately, he decides this is not the right thing. He ought to make something of himself and earn an income and not look for jail. The moment he decides that, a policeman arrests him on grounds of loitering. It's a very sad story. But if you analyze it, and that's part of the point that O. Henry is making, why is this guy trying to go to prison? He's not wanting to be locked up. 
He's wanting heat. He's wanting not to shiver in the cold. He's wanting food. He's not wanting to be stabbed by violent neighbor. These are the things he is seeking. Now, these are the positive values of freedom. Now, if the state were to provide that, suppose think of a nice state uh, which gives people money for food and winter heat and takes care of violence, then that is a good thing to provide. But to value these doesn't require one to have to lock this guy up in order to provide them, and it shouldn't be. So I think there are two problems with the story. I respect the story because that's the way when I say reasoning is important, and I think what you're doing is to present a very good reason that we ought to tackle. But the way I would tackle is that what he's seeking is not being locked up. What he's seeking is the ancillary benefits that go with it, and that is in the nature of freedom. And secondly, this could be a very dangerous argument, especially in this country, where the propensity to lock people up is astonishingly large for a reason that, as an immigrant, is not altogether clear to me. But if they are locked up, that's a pretty bad thing. And, you know, giving heat and food might make it a bit better, but I'd rather that the food and heat came without being locked up. We're reaching the end, and I have one last question. There is often, at least in common parlance, the idea that technology, the capacity to travel, the access to other parts of the mind in terms of science or of aspects of nature, that we are more free today or have the capacity of a larger pool of freedom than previous generations have. So I wonder if that matches with a philosophical understanding that you have been playing upon. Does one get more freedom when technology and science and reason is at our service, or is freedom always the same across time, and there are simply more emphasis or a clear evidence on certain aspects of it? I think that's also an excellent question to ponder about. Certainly, freedom is not unchanging and not independent of technology. The kind of freedom that I choose would depend on what technology allows. If I hear of a fantastic opera taking place in Philadelphia, and I know I can go there by an airplane and get there on time, if I'm prevented from taking the plane, I would grumble. But that grumble is parasitic on there being such things as aviation. And in a world without aviation, that would not be a feasibility at all. And so in many ways, technology allows both the possibilities of freedom as well as the unfreedom that we suffer from if we are prevented from using that. That is, in today's world, when you are suffering from an illness for which a cure exists and easily manufacturable drugs exist, not to do that is a lack of freedom in a way it wasn't 300 years ago, even 300 years ago. So I think we have to understand what is freedom and what is unfreedom by taking into account all the circumstances of which technological circumstances are certainly very important. I would resist the idea that every technological expansion of capacity is an expansion of freedom. It depends on whether you would like that or not. For example, people are talking about space travel, and that's a huge achievement. 
I certainly am not going to pay good money in order to be kept in some kind of a dark cell, so flying to some place over four months without being able to chat, have my normal coffee, and argue with people and discuss Mr. Trump is a good thing or a bad thing, and instead of that, watch the stars for four months. I certainly wouldn't want that. So I think it depends on, again, in our reasoning. And here I'd say our tastes differ. There are these people who would like to go to Mars and lead a kind of arid life there. So I think these are not matters of legislation. These are matters of reasoning. And we have to accept that our reasonings do differ. And, you know, to some extent you've been pointing out that, and I agree with that. On the other hand, technology can contribute to freedom, and why contribute to freedom? Contribute to the idea of unfreedom when we are preventing from doing that. Technology is therefore very important, which is not the same thing as saying that it's invariably a good thing to happen, an expansion of technology in our life. And I certainly would like the world to lose the atom bombs and hydrogen bombs and get back to a primitive state which we can't make these nasty instruments. It's been a pleasure to have you in In Contrast. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. There is no more precious right than freedom. Freedom is the capacity to think, say, and do as we wish without obstacle. In the United States, we obsess about freedom, particularly about freedom of speech. We turn this particular form of freedom into a fetish. Without it, we say, nothing else has value. That freedom isn't universal. It is curtailed in large portions of the planet, not only by dictatorial regimes, but by economic forces that impede the awareness as well as the exercise of freedom. Poverty is among the chief obstacles. Without a person being able to satisfy her basic needs, food, health, education, freedom exists only as an absence. This might sound like a simple idea, yet its implications are enormous. Wealth, not only in material terms, but also as knowledge, brings about choice. And the more choices we have, the better off we become. The opposite is also true, obviously. The less we have, the more imprisoned we become. Underdevelopment, in other words, is synonymous with what philosophers call unfreedom. It is therefore crucial to recognize that freedom has strings attached. With freedom comes responsibility toward others. When someone's not free, everyone else is too. This means that to achieve freedom, one might only do it in conjunction with others, as a collective effort. In that sense, to bring others from bondage to freedom is a virtue. They become free, and we do too. This concept of freedom clashes against the tenets of individualism. Individualism is about fighting for one's own interest first and foremost. It is about the survival of the fittest. As long as we as individuals are well, who cares about the rest of humankind? In fact, my individuality might look even better when others are pushed down as I get to the top. The fallacy behind this philosophy is clear. We don't live in a jungle. We live in community. There is no freedom when others are in misery. 
Freedom is a shared value. It is enhanced when others make use of it. Next time on In Contrast. Dreams filled with rivers find its curse. Dreams of the sun dreaming its words. Sing until the sun throws out root. Drunk branches, birds of stars. Sing until the dream engenders. Magos Herrera and Brooklyn Writer on the next In Contrast. For previous episodes, including our interviews with Joseph Stiglitz, Saskia Sassen, and George Will, visit our website at nepr.net. Help spread the word about In Contrast by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, where we invite you to share your comments on this program and others in our series. Our intern is Delina Hadgood. Our music is by the Fresh Cut Orchestra. The executive producer of In Contrast is John Vosey. I'm Ilan Stavans. Thank you for listening. In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions.